0: Welcome to the fifth episode of the We Got We, Not BP podcast. My name is Sharon Lonezzo-Hong, and I'm hosting with my sister Monique Ferdin. Monique's going to open this up with an acknowledgement written by Noelle Didla on behalf of our collective, Another Gulf is Possible.
1: We, the many shades of brown collaborating from the Gulf South to the global South as Another Gulf is Possible, pay tribute to the land we inhabit, the waters that give us life, the living beings we share this world with and our time and space. As land stewards, water protectors, cultural workers, and comrades in struggle, we continue to lean into our generational missions of accountable stewardship and intergenerational community building and learning. We acknowledge the pain, rage, love, and determination of our Black brothers sisters, and all our trans and gender non-forming family, and stand in solidarity to seek justice for Dominique Fells, Rhea Milton, Victor Steen, Tamar Crawford, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, David McAtney, and every person that is a victim of police brutality, violence, and the pervasive plague of racism that's infected our communities way before COVID-19. We acknowledge the legacies of white supremacist settler colonialism that is impacting all our communities, local and global. As such, we commit to deep political education, authentic relationship building, and accountable solidarity work with our black, brown, and white allies in each of our communities as our sacred, sacred responsiveness to the truths and legacies of people and place. We steadfastly support Black self-determination and steward indigenous sovereignty, racial justice, and liberation of our peoples, Mother Earth, and her life forces. Thank you, Noelle, for writing this on behalf of Another Gulf is Possible. Thank you, Monique.
0: So our collective has been really thinking about how to actualize those intentions. How do we live those words? And how do we show up in solidarity with our Black sisters and brothers? We decided to pause the production of this podcast to quiet our own voices and amplify Black Lives Matter. Then I got a call from a community leader who has dedicated his work to ensuring economic development in Black communities and communities of color. Mr. Tony McRae. Mr. Tony urged us to keep going. He said, where does the money go? Where does the money not go? This is just another way they got their knees at our throats. That heat hit deeply. Another Gulf is Possible decided before we take our pause to recognize this moment of rising consciousness to the pandemic of systemic racism and the 400 year long struggle for Blacks in America. We invite you to practice deep listening and hear these voices along the Gulf Coast as they tell their stories from their black experience and their understanding of where does the money go.
1: We are incredibly honored to have Lavana Bernardo Brown, a socially engaged multidisciplinary artist, teacher, and community organizing, organizer, joining us from Bulbancha here in New Orleans at the end of the Mississippi River. And
0: Derek Evans, teacher in civil rights and environmental justice advocate from Turkey Creek, Mississippi.
1: Quincy Q. Hull is with us, uh, calling in from Pensacola, Florida. He's a poet, a father, a teacher, an author, and an advocate for social change. And Spirit McIntyre is a musician, also from Vobuncha,
0: and also a wellness advocate, sound healer, Reiki practitioner, and compassionate facilitator.
1: During the height of the civil rights movement in Jackson, Mississippi in 1963, there were field secretaries working for the student nonviolent coordinating committee, Doris Derby and John O'Neill, and a student leader by the name of Gilbert Moses. The three of them founded the Free Southern Theater and developed a process called the Story Circle Process as a tool for activism and organizing. John O'Neill said, the rules of the story circle are the rules of civil participation in society. You agree to listen. You agree to respect. And thinking about how we would share our time with each other today for this conversation about where the money goes, the story circle process came to us as a tool that we could use to inspire how we could ground this conversation. We're gonna be breaking some of the story circle process rules. The number one is that you're supposed to sit in a circle. (laughs) So we're doing this virtually today. But there are four parts of a story circle process. One part is introducing and listening to the guidelines. The second part is listening and telling. The third is crosstalk and snapshots. And the fourth, the most important, is a transformative action. A creation that comes out of the listening to the stories. Um, so we're going to um, to give each of our participants equal time. That is one of the um, the core uh, rules of the story circle process. And um, you know the first story seeds all the stories that come after. And the most important part of storytelling is listening. So we encourage all of you who are listening um, to to really listen to the story, um, to not think about your own story. And we ask our storytellers to tell their story, a story that comes from the deepest place that you feel comfortable sharing. Um, uh, After everyone has told their story, uh, we'll have time to go around and have snapshots and then um, our transformative process will begin. So uh, to get our stories um, warmed up or to get us warmed up for our stories rather, uh, we're gonna allow Q to share this poem um, that he wrote some time back, but that has been a real foundation for us in, in thinking about where the money goes and how originally we were thinking this would be in response to the BP drilling disaster, which is why we started this podcast in the first place. Um, but now we find ourselves here. So with that, cue. Um,
2: the name of the poem is BP Stands for Black People. Blood is thicker than water, maybe unless that's oil. In it. Then this gooey mixture becomes like glue but the way it has banded this band of bandits looking for band-aids to cover the hurt. But the hurt is so severe that they say that they should get on the sailboats and sail away and sell their things away until they are sold out. Too late, you've already sold out. You've already screamed, yelled, and cried, louder for dirty water, whether fluoride in the tap or oil in the ocean. Then you have all the injustices caused by this blood dirty southern city of old, sacred southern values, devaluing blacks. Malcolm said it best, the chickens have come home to loose. You need not be sad, because I'm not. But beware, and remember, hurricanes always travel in the paths of the slave ships. Trust me, there's much more to come. The universe is unsettled and has to settle the score, using universal law, some call it karma. What you give is what you get. But why beautiful blue water, you say? Because your beautiful blue water has drowned the souls of black slaves, soaked on the ocean's floor. And you're doing the same to their descendants, drowning their rich, beautiful black history. Black like oil, rich like oil, soaked on the ocean's floor. To me, BP stands for Black people, reminding you that we are still here and showing you where we are. So don't run, repent, reconcile, repair. You can't run from universal law. It doesn't come when you expect it, but the opposite. So save your tears, because there's nothing wrong with the oil and water mixture. Because if the water was already a beautiful shade of blue, it can only improve with Black because Black is always beautiful. So be thankful for BP, and be thankful for Black people, because without us, you have nothing to be thankful for.
0: Mm, thank you, Q. Thank you. We are so thankful for you. Um, All right, so now we're going to begin the story circle. We've asked our guests to share about how, in this time of the movement for Black Lives, how are you being directly affected, your habitat and community, and how does that impact where the money goes, for better or worse? We'll begin with a cute uh, spirit sharing a song.
3: Thank you for that question. And I do have a song and before I do the song, my thoughts about um, this particular moment of the movement for Black Lives and what I see and what that means for where the money goes, for better or for worse, is in thinking about black trans community. As a member of black trans community, um, in this time of the movement for black lives, there's a way that the movement for black lives stops short when it comes to black trans lives and black trans lives matter. Black trans lives are black lives, but it's not always assumed. Um, which is why we then have to have a hashtag that says Black Trans Lives Matter. So when I think about where the money goes, from my personal experience, the money, also known as the resources, also known as the outrage, also known as the protests, often don't go towards Black trans community members. And so that's my perspective on where the money goes.
4: Blood.
5: Lives are sacred, all black lives are worthy. We matter, we matter, we matter, Black matter matter. Black Habitat Matters, Black Life Matters, Black
1: Matter Matters, Black Habitat Matters. Thank you, spirit. Derek, how do you feel about telling your story?
4: Good. Um, Thank you for inviting me to participate. Um, I've been doing what I do um, for quite a while. Um, And in the spirit of Black life and Black habitats and Black communities, mattering, um, I I think I should start by saying I'm blessed in that at the age of 53, um, I have never thought of myself living outside of a very rich and dynamic, um, fertile uh, and challenged history as a native of the Turkey Creek community. In coastal Mississippi in particular. My community was established in 1866 by four previously enslaved African-American couples and I am a fifth generation descendant of two of those couples. Uh, my mother of course is a fifth generation and I've always known and, and, and lived as if it mattered that for some 14 generations from the very early 1500s until the end of um, the Civil War and the Reconstruction in the United States, 14 generations of enslaved African-Americans whose histories, individual histories, have been lost to us, survived and ultimately produced and delivered through the six and now seven and eight generations that have occupied uh, North America in Blackness uh, since that time. And I'm one of the blessed ones to have direct intergenerational wealth of oral history um, and spatial history. and it matters. And I've spent the last 15 or 20 years sharing that, reminding my own community of that and all that it means, but also sharing that with others who can tap in readily and vicariously to be frankly empowered rather than uh, increasingly conscious of their vulnerabilities and victimization. Um, when I think of um, our lives and communities mattering, it's very important to me that as we process our vulnerabilities and survival of victimizations, multiple layered as they are, that we end uh, up as victors somehow. And when it comes to the Gulf of Mexico, which is a particular slice of the Gulf, of the, of the South, of the former Confederacy, and of North America or Turtle Island um, there are degrees of universal as well as particular um, circumstances that define our habitat and habitat or community is very important because all day every day and all night regardless of any incidents or movements or uh, trends or occurrences This is where our black lives exist um, and thrive or not. And I learned some years ago uh, to value community self-awareness and community self-mapping and community self-knowledge, or as I say, habitat. And we learned that and, and 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 speak and say that in this context particularly in a place that's constantly being developed and redeveloped and hit by disasters and recovering or not that it, a very simple truism is that if you're not at the table you're on the menu and we take it even further in turkey creek we have what we call turkey creek power a turkey creek mindset that quite frankly even being at the table is not good enough for our Black lives and our Black habitat and how these matter. Um, Instead, we advocate that if you don't set the table, you will soon be a guest in your own house, in your own habitat, and in your own community. And this is the kind of displacement that has, over history, um, earned such names as gentrification, right? Uh, displacement, uh, and other iterations of what's now in this last quarter century, what I call uh, the great displacement, affecting all uh, in varying degrees, depending upon their pre-existing varying degrees of freedom and un- or unfreedom in our alleged but non-democratic democracy. So where the money went, Turkey Creek community was fortunate to have myself and other community-based advocates in pre-existing relationship with one another, with our home, and with kindred communities and spirits across the Gulf of Mexico coast so that we could frankly uh, engage in a multi-front approach to making sure that we survived and hopefully thrived uh, in the wake of uh, both predictable and unpredictable disaster and post-disaster disaster. And by that, I mean, for instance, we were in our third, since 2006, uh, draft of an of a pre-existing watershed plan for our drainage basin and the ecological uh, contributors to its health. And because of One that, minute. Thank Sorry, you. Derek, Derek, one minute. It's fine. Because of that, unfortunately, for the in the larger scheme of things, but fortunately for us, we were able to uh, land seven million dollars a couple of years ago of BP's fine money for its egregious and huge, incalculable uh, Clean Water Act impacts, because we were poised or positioned. Uh, both consciously and on paper, uh, to do so. Um, And we didn't do it alone. Like I said, you know, I've become in the last 15, 20 years very familiar, from east of Pensacola to Galveston Bay, with many sister communities of Turkey Creek that are ecologically, geologically, culturally, socially, politically, economically, red beans and ricedly, okay. Uh, kindred. And it at this point, and I'll end with this um, it is possible still that BP's uh, ma- billions and billions of dollars of penalties and monies that have gone to the states and to the federal government for uh, recovery and restoration. Uh, And I've got some ideas that we will be pursuing later. But this needs to hit in more places than just uh, where Tony lives in Pensacola or Turkey Creek. Uh, Because of, as we all know, the number of communities on the Gulf Coast who, um, if they were as empowered as we are to be, like I said, self-knowing, self-mapping, and self-advocating, would more readily, I believe, receive some of the unfortunate windfall caused by such an unfortunate disaster as BP, or before that Katrina, or what have you. So that's what I'm all about. That's what my community and habitat is all about. At the end of the day, just like the proverbial lion in the proverbial hunt, where the proverbial hunter tells the story of the lion, um, the first step getting it back to where it belongs, which is the lion telling the story of the hunt, has to do with the story that the lion tells the lion's self about where the lion is and how the lion has to survive, has to figure out how to do, make do, get through, get over and get around long enough to eventually tell that story to someone else. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Thank you so much.
1: Um, I have just noticed that Mr. Tony McRae who um, really encouraged us to go forward uh, with this podcast has joined us and um, uh, Mr. Tony I um, am hoping that you um, are okay with sharing your story with us today and um, maybe Sharon you can repeat the um, the the prompt. Mr. Tony? Yes. Hi. Hi. Sharon. How are you doing? Do you, oh all right. Thanks for being here. Sharon, can you uh, can you share the the story prompt for Mr. Tony?
0: Sure. Sure. We've asked you guys to share about how in this time of the movement for black lives, how are you being directly affected? Your habitat, your community, and how does that impact where the money goes, for better or
6: worse? And are we speaking of the BP funds or other dollars also?
0: Um, other anything you would like to speak to, Mr. Tony? Okay.
6: Um. So let's let's focus on. Um, what we are faced with after every disaster, and that is um, organizing a recovery strategy that allows us to, of course, recover from the disaster, the hurricanes, the oil spills, and now the uh, coronavirus, uh, the, uh, the upcoming depression, We're in a recession already. Depression's on its way. And now the Black Lives Movement has awakened a sleeping giant of of Black, White, Asian, Hispanics all working together because we're a little tired of being on the bottom of the totem pole and being forgotten and government uh, not living up to its its, um, responsibility to ensure that any disparities that are identified are, or debt worth. Um, when the BP spill took place, we had, we were still trying to recover from Ivan and Katrina. Katrina uh, sent so many uh, families this way. And sometimes they were families. Sometimes they were gangs out of the New Orleans, Mississippi area. And our, and our uh, crime just skyrocketed. So, We felt that the BPR spill um, penalty dollars since Obama made sure that the counties were going to receive the Restore Act dollars rather than the Treasury, that we had to be involved in uh, the decision making of what the guidelines were going to be. And so uh, just like uh, it was stated earlier, that if we're not at the table, we're on the menu, we decided to set our own table. So we were able to uh, submit a lot of input into the process and um, with a lot of commitments that there would be minority and diverse uh, funding. Well, that's all well and good when it comes to um, you know verbal commitments. But when it came down to the nitty gritty, environmental projects took priority and I was able to organize a African-American-led workforce development proposal. It's the only economic development proposal submitted in Escambia County for Restore Act dollars, and um, the only African-American proposal. We were approved three years ago, y'all, three years ago, and we still haven't received the funds Supposedly Department of Treasury has not released the funds to be because we got a bid on our own contract. So they haven't released the funds to be uh, even bidded on. So, but everybody else is funded and operating, you know. And so it's 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 eye-opening when you when you realize that even though you approve for the dollars, even though you had input into the process, you can still be completely left out of actual dollars. Um, we, when we saw that, we began seeking other sources, of course, to gen up our capability to have some dollars that could leverage the BPR spill dollars we requested. By the way, it was a $900,000 request that was approved, and um, we're still waiting. So it's been a lot of disappointment. But let me share that we realized that standing alone um, as one community in Pensacola, that uh, we took took a, a risk of not being reckoned with. So we started talking regionally, started dealing with communities in Santa Rosa County next door, Okaloosa County for Walton Beach, on down to Panama City, particularly after they got hit with Hurricane Michael. So the message, I believe, is we need to organize ourselves to avoid this pitfall of realizing at some point that the money is gone. We need to have the kind of strategic planning that allows us the capability. First of all, we need to step up. All this volunteer work is is hurting us. but. Um, I think it's important that we learn from these lessons that we're talking about. Organize ourselves regionally. Uh, the Gulf Coast itself, you know, um, is a is a powerful region that needs to be um, need to be understood what our what our issues are, what our disparities are, and we need to get support from around the country to rectify these issues. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Tony. So, uh, Lavana, how do you feel about sharing your story with us?
7: Oh. Trying to unmute the wrong thing. Right. I feel great. I didn't want to call Joe. Just do I am excited to be here. Um, so I would like to tell a story about Gordon Plaza. Um, Gordon Plaza is a neighborhood of Black um people black working class people mostly uh retired age black people um when you think about the american dream um and the idea of if you do all the right things like work a job and um invest in a home you can maybe have um, some generational wealth or be able to leave your home to your children um and in the case of gordon plaza Um, They're not able to do that because of um, their home being on a Superfund site. Um, So just a little history on them. Starting in 1909, the Agriculture Street landfill was used as an industrial waste site. Um, That was for about 30 years. The city used that area to dump all their waste and considering um, this time before the FDA and before um, chemical and carcinogenic, regu- carcinogenic regulations. So all of this stuff was being dumped in this area for about 30 years. So in 1948, um, Louisiana instilled in a state law um, that wanted them to sanitize the area using uh, chemicals like DDT, uh, malathion. Diazinon and other carcinogenic chemicals uh, were used to try to clear out all the industrial waste, right? Um, So then in 1951, um, the neighborhood residents around Agriculture Street Landfill um, began to put pressure on the city um, to get members to transform the area into something other than a dump right up under their neighborhood. Um, And so that is when um, Moon Landrew began the process of uh, applying for funds, applying for federal money to turn that area into low income housing. Um, That low income housing was pretty very specifically um, marketed and um, sold and showed to black families. Black families who, one resident in particular, Mr. Jesse, um, bought the home to get his mom out of the projects. Um, he was trying to give provide her with something he had, she had nurtured him his entire life. And so he was trying to do the right thing by his mom and purchasing her a home, not knowing that it had been a landfill. So in 1958, around the um, the landfill was cleared and it stayed closed for a few years until betsy happened post betsy uh 1965 the agricultural street landfill was reopened to receive the city's refuse post the storm um and about the 70s late 70s by about 81 uh mitch landrew i'm sorry Dutch Landrew was the mayor. The homes were developed and purchased. And um, by 1981, it was a fully functioning neighborhood. 1983, a, an elementary school was built in the neighborhood called Moton Elementary. And they started to see some issues with water, students getting sick. So in 83, there were soil tests done at the site. Um, and they, uh, the environmentalists um, saw that there were toxins. In the. 1986, uh, Moulton Elementary had to be cleared because there were toxins and the students were getting sick. Um, following the testing, so years passed, so between 1986 and now, the residents in Gordon Plaza have been fighting um, elected officials, the state, um, to bring awareness to the fact that their homes are on toxic soil. In 1994, um, the, the Gordon Plaza was named a Superfund site. Then Katrina happened years later. Um, there was topsoil moved between 2001 and 2005. The state came and removed about two feet of soil, put some construction fence down and some dirt and uh, called that a cleanup. Um, and then in 2006, the residents had been organizing. They had a council, they filed a, a civil lawsuit. Nine residents were able to receive funds from that lawsuit. The the lawyers took the bulk, millions of dollars from that lawsuit, and the residents received between $2,000 and $500. Now, knowing the economy now, and especially with most of the residents being retired, and this was their home that they've invested in, $500, $2,000 is not enough to relocate your home, purchased another home, take out another mortgage, pay for more flood insurance. So the job was left undone even with a civil suit. So here we are in 2020 with the residents of Gordon Plaza now going on a third and some fourth generation are still fighting to be fully funded, relocated from their homes um, and Right now, it's really pertinent, and this is how it connects to me: is that I can
1: sit I'm in sorry, my home. One minute,
7: okay. I can sit in my <laughs> home and be comfortable and take a deep breath, um, even though we know all the toxins that are just become normal, unfortunately. But for the most part, I can feel safe and at home within my home. But for the Gordon Plaza residents. It is not safe for them to be inside of their home consecutive hours at a time on top of a toxic landfill. Um, And so where does the money go in a city like New Orleans with a budget of $725 million when 63% of that budget is dedicated to the police? and jails and reactionary measures and less than 5% with 3% being to children and families and 1% being to job development, it shows where the priorities are. And so we need to flip the budget and we need to um, develop a thinking of community like my brother Derek said, um, that we need to not be on the menu or guests in our own homes Uh, We can have our full autonomy, and um, it's time for us to be able to stand up and do that. And so I would like to see um, the funds be able to go to the Gordon Plaza residents because they're there. Especially we also just saw $40 million go on cameras um, to watch us in the city. Um, Meanwhile, there have been murders that we, we still don't know on the corners where these flashing light cameras are. So, um, just thinking about the resources and thinking about um, how we can, as a people, um, collect and use our power to um, make a change in the material conditions. I'm gonna stop there, because I'll just...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, So, for our last story, um, before we're able to, to just share some snapshots, Um, we have Quincy Q. Hull.
2: Could you ask the question again, please?
1: Okay. Um, I can, I can share it. Um, how in this time of the movement for black lives, how are you being directly affected your habitat and community and how does that impact where the money goes for better or for worse?
2: So, I'll start with this. Um, I'm not from Pensacola. I moved to Pensacola in 2009. Um, a week after Victor Steen was assassinated by the Pensacola Police Department. That poem I did was written because in 2010, there was a movement, I guess it started, called Hands Across the Sands. I don't know if anybody remembers that. And I didn't really want to be a part of that because it felt like we were ignoring what happened in our city to a young, innocent, unarmed black man. So I wanted to write that in response to, I thought was a misappropriation of priorities, to hold hands on the beach, to deal with all, and not deal with something that we've been dealing with since we've been brought to this country. I felt that that was a whole lot more important. So, um, and the poem was probably met with mixed emotions, some maybe in support, maybe little. Majority of people didn't like it because they thought I was going against the oil spill. It's not what I was doing. I was trying to bring light to a situation of oppressed people that I don't know if it fell on deaf ears or not. It doesn't matter. My job as an artist is to speak about the, the conditions that are around me. Those conditions are around me. Coming from Gary, Indiana, moving to Memphis, Tennessee. Wherever I've been, I've seen police brutality at a high level. I call it police terrorism because that's what it is. Uh, How am I directly infected? I have a 15-year-old daughter who has three older brothers, and the conversations that we're having lately is, will my brothers be shot and killed by the police? I can't tell her no. I can't lie to her. I can only give her some direction, try to offer some type of help to help her feel better about it because at 15, she should be thinking about her sophomore year in high school. Not the fact that she thinks she's suffering now for the first time in her life from anxiety. Whenever she sees the police, her heart starts beating real fast. This is what I have to deal with as a black man in America. So um, as far as the money, it never goes where it needs to go. No money. I'm not speaking of BP oil spill money. No money. Uh, Money should go to organizations to where people have to deal with the conditions that black people have to deal with since we've been dealing with, since we've been in this country. Funds should always go there. It should go to people who are community activists so they can continue to do the work that they need to, be, to get done. Uh, it's obvious that when they brought us here, they didn't bring us here to be free. They brought us here to be slaves, and they never wrote in what to do once they became free. So that was never a plan. So I think that the plan should be for us to sit down at the table to talk amongst ourselves on what we should be doing to make sure that these things don't keep happening in the midst of what's going on now. To speak of something like Atlanta, which was already burning, in the midst of that burning, they decided to kill another innocent unarmed black man. I think it's obvious what's going on with us. I think it's obvious that the people who are trying to do what they're trying to do to us, they have a plan. We just need to have a plan to make sure that those things don't keep happening. And when they do happen, what we can do to curve it or to shut it down or to stop it. I think for the most part, that's the, that's the biggest part for me, uh, is dealing with that. There probably would be another situation with oil and water, somewhere in the near future, maybe, maybe not. And the money will probably not be distributed properly. But we know for sure that there will be more police killings of innocent black men and women. I think first and foremost, we need to develop a system to making sure that we can do better jobs at protecting ourselves. Somebody had a picture up earlier of Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton Jr. is one of my very best friends. Uh, we were on the front line for many, many, many years, from Chicago to Mississippi to Iowa, the Butte, Iowa, traveling this country, and it was the same story everywhere we went. The story was systemic racism, which feeds, which feeds police brutality, of course. Or we're going to be talking about so many young innocent black men being killed if it wasn't stemmed by racism. So I know that I also have a 75-year-old father who's a Vietnam veteran. My father is 75 and my 15 year old daughter, we have conversations. And those conversations are about the same thing. And I remember in 1990, when the, poli- when the paper came out to take pictures of my 90 year old grandfather at the time, at the end of it, myself, my father, and my grandfather were sharing stories and all of our stories were the same. My grandfather said, what a shame, I'm sharing the story with my, f-. at that time, his son was 45 years under, younger than him. And I was 70 years younger than he was. And we had the same stories. I don't want to be sitting on the porch at 90 with my daughter and my grandchildren sharing the same stories. And if so, that means we haven't done what we're supposed to be doing to change what's going on in this country. And I think that's where we need to start. Uh, direct power change. I think the Panthers were really on it trying to bring about a change. And sometimes people are gonna have to be sacrificed. They're innocent of being sacrificed as it is. So we just have to work a little harder a lot stronger to make sure that we can bring about a real change in this country so we can stop having these type of conversations, which are important to have, but they're only important to have because of the problems that are going on. I think I can end it there because I know myself as well. I'm extremely long-winded, and I think I wanted to just stop right before I'm told that I need to stop. Um,
1: thank you all for, for sharing. Um, yeah. Um, so the story circle process, you know, everyone tells their story and then we have a, a time for snapshots. So for all of the participants who told stories today, um, and we'll just kind of what comes up, you know, what is that, what is that photograph that you saw when you heard the story? Um, I think about, I keep thinking about the table, right? The, the sitting at the table. So that's one snapshot um, but just gonna open up uh, open it up for whatever whatever resonated um, in other stories for us to just share with each other for a few minutes one
7: of the snapshots that um, resonates with me um, even though he just said a cue was just, just the image of uh, generational storytelling and um, how long Black people in this nation have had to simultaneously heal and bomb themselves from the ongoing perpetual attacks of terror and um, at one point our literal neighbors, right? And I forget, it's still, Ahmad was killed in a neighborhood. So um, thinking about the simultaneous healing that we have to do in conjunction with work um to come together and uh sit at the table and uh set the table and build the table and get them source the na- you know, like know knowing that we need to have our own mode and of production and um have our own sources and um being able to get to that. So the the cumulative work of being black is very tiring and um so it's nice to have a, a snapshot picture of uh, generational storytelling that we can dream will be new stories and center joy and not our terror.
6: I'd like to uh, add, first of all, Q, how you live in Pensacola? We don't know each other. <laughs> That's the first thing. And I guess the point of the, the, the point I'm trying to make is the issues that we discussed have to all be dealt with, the recovery from the oil spill, the preparation for the next hurricane and the recovery from that, Uh, the housing, uh, the affordable housing uh, issues that exist, jobs, business, business opportunities. I was involved in the disparity study for the city of Pensacola that found that the banking industry in this region had one of the worst records in the country of loaning money to African Americans, women, and Hispanics. So we've got to think holistically, and I think it's very important that this the concept that, uh, not the concept, but the movement that was brought to me by uh, Monique and Sharon um, this other Gulf Coast um, is very important that we organize regionally, attempt to raise the funding regionally, and deal with a holistic approach to resolve the issues in our community. Because if we ignore any issue, we're going to get bit in the butt by the by not tackling uh, the disparities that um, you know we try we ignore we feel we can't handle we've got to have an holistic approach and I think what I'm getting out of this is that uh, Lavana spoke about the um, issues of the uh, pollution in New Orleans well in, in Pensacola Scambia County we have Wedgwood and it's 12 to 13 uh, landfills in one community and and we got promises for the um, pollution to be dealt with, but yet and still, it it continues. So if we start learning from each other, because I learned a lot from LaVonna today about, I didn't even know about what was going on in New Orleans related to environmental injustice in in the community. Um, I think if we compare notes and combine our efforts, we we can have a lot more success, particularly with the um, Black Lives Movement giving us the kind of traction and the kind of attention that I think we're, we're garnering globally. Mr. McCray,
2: we uh, do know each other, sir. I met you at the Pensacola Network on several occasions and we talked on several occasions, sir. <laughs> uh, but we will get reconnected after today, for sure. Um, I definitely have learned a lot from everybody who has spoken. and What I've gotten the most from is the fact that we're all trying to help further our cause. And that's the key thing. And um, I am want to make sure that we can all continue that, not just today, but moving forward. So hopefully there's a way that we can all get in contact with each other so we can all sit at the table and not be on the menu, but create the (laughs) menu. It's also what I learned from that. So um, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, taking this step and moving as far forward as we can move with it. So again, I appreciate the opportunity of being on such a distinguished panel. So thank all of y'all for listening and I appreciate what I heard as well.
3: Um, So I'm, I was really I was really shocked by just listening to um, the number that you said, Lavana, um, of 63% funding going to the police, right? And then 5%. And then, did you say 2% or 3% was the last one? But it's just that, just that is just so um, egregious. <laughs> And so, um, that really does um, bring a different motivation to me about the, ne- the necessity of defunding police. Um, because it's, it's in some circles being talked about as so just outrageous. And it's just like, 63%. And it's just like, that number, yeah, that number is just outrageous, outrageous. And so, um, yeah, that's a snapshot that is just sticking with me. And I'm curious about what that snapshot is across the country, you know, um, state to state. What does the funding look like? Um, because what they'll do is what they've done this past week. Um, That's what they do with our 63%. They arm themselves against us, right? They enact violence and then feel some type of way when we meet that violence with anything other than like, thank you so much for keeping me safe, but you're not. You're not keeping me safe. So it's just this like, yeah
7: yeah i i love that spirit and thank you for sharing um your musicality even at the river um that was a a land acknowledging natural metaphysical whole thing so i appreciate you so much and um it's it's interesting because people also have this question like what do we do without the police? But um, if we have resources, crime isn't the issue. We need the resources in our community. Um, And so,
1: yeah. Thank you everyone for sharing your snapshots. Um, We're getting towards the end of our time here. I feel like we could have a whole, couple more hours days weeks of dialogue um and hope that we can remain um in dialogue um as we move forward um so another element um the the last element of the story circle process is a transformative action and um i feel like this hour that we've spent together has has definitely Helped me um, gain a different perspective, and I'm sure so many others have too. Um, so we've asked Spirit um, to to take um, to take in all of the reflections that we heard today, um, and to share with us, um, you know what what feels right to respond to in this moment as a kind of close for our our story circle together. Um, Spirit is ready?
3: Yeah, I'm ready. Um, So we'll see how this goes. But um, in terms of thinking about the stories, um, I took some notes. It's very, it's a very short, it's very short. With more time, you know, lyrics, I love to like, but this is, it it is what it is. Um, And in thinking about reparations, reparations seems like a through line in all of these stories. Reparations, 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 because we'll know what to do. We'll figure it out. If you give us the funds, we will figure out what is needed Um, because Y'all don't know what's needed. So it's not like it's in good hands right now, right? So, um, So yeah, here's this. Reparations now forever. Reparations now forever. We must set the table. We must organize. Can we come together for all Black lives? Reparations now forever.
5: Reparations
3: now forever. We must set the table. We must organize. Can we come together for all
5: Black lives?
3: Reparations now forever
1: Reparations now forever yeah. <laughs> Um. Yes, thank you. Uh, I can't wait to, to see what comes of more time with those yeah. lyrics. Um, yes, thank you so much. Thanks to all of you. Um, for being with us uh, today. This has been a really, really special episode. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. We're going to be taking a break um, from our podcast series and um, we're... We're we're dedicated and wanting to do the work and wanting to be in community and solidarity with all of you and the movement for Black lives in whatever way we can. So, um, to all of our distinguished guests and to everyone who's listening, um, yeah, we we all deserve better and reparations now forever. <laughs> Can we come together? <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah.
6: Y'all, y'all let us know when, when you're going to have the virtual summit. We need a virtual summit.
1: Yeah, we need to spend some real time together, too. I'm looking forward to when we can share space together and sit at that table together and, um, yeah, listen to music and hear more stories. Hear more um, poetry. More poetry and... More poetry and Yeah, you know, seed those dreams for um, for the future that we're all working so hard for. Um, Well, we are at time, and um, again, just can't say thank you enough. Um, No,
6: thank you, thank you for pulling us together. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
6: Q, call me Q.
0: Thanks, well
1: y'all. yeah yeah peace. peace 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 everyone
2: peace <laughs>